0: Okay, everyone, it's thinning out, which means you guys are the true, you're sort of the core, the remnant of Israel here to, you know. Right, extra credit, definitely. On the final exam, your curve is going to be huge. Okay, all right. Uh, It is cold. Maybe that's why people are cold and they don't want to, I don't know. What does that mean? They don't want to talk about the prayer book when they're cold? Is that, we only talk about prayer book when they're, right, right. All right, so I want to, ever remind us of the two goals of what we're doing in this class, right? We're trying to look at the prayer book in a way that connects head and heart, and we're trying to tune our ears to hear that gospel in worship. And I hope that maybe as you went through the confession today in morning prayer, if you were there at nine, that some of those things that we talked about rang true. I don't know about you, but I, I felt a little bit more my sense of being a Pharisee and a prodigal and needing to just confess that before the Lord. And I don't know if you felt today, and I know it's, it's totally based on, on what's going on in your life and how everything's, are, how everything's going, but I just felt a, a sweet sense of the continuity of that journey, that arc where God was drawing us into intimacy with himself and that dialogue that we're going to talk about today. And we're going to breeze through a big section of morning prayer and the next week is the final section. The final three weeks will be uh, Holy Communion. And the reason we're taking a bit longer on morning prayer is that some elements of Holy Communion are the same. And so that'll we're, we're taking more of our time with some of this stuff. Uh, but yeah, as you grab your packets and grab a song, these are the big goals. And then we discuss the heart of the prayer book. Again, the Word of God is living and active. So the goal is that when we worship, the Word of God is unleashed to convert your heart through the power of the Gospel. And did you not hear the center of Reformation theology that uh, Fitz Allison was preaching today? If you were in the 9 o'clock, if you're going to 11 o'clock, his sermon's outstanding. It's just wonderful about the nature of repentance, that Greeks didn't have a word for a change of heart, so they use metanoia, which is a change of mind, but he offered the idea that a true biblical understanding of repentance is converting the heart, metacardia, the change of the heart. And uh, so that's precisely what the goal of the Word of God, that's what the Spirit of God wants to do in a worship service, is to grab your heart to preach the law to it, so it exposes it, and then to say, but there is one who lived for you and died for you. His name is Jesus. And by that affection, by that love that God declares and gives to you, we are able to respond in return to hug the Father and to go forth and to love others freely. I'm going to preach a little bit about that, the nature of the way love works with good works tonight at five o'clock. We talked about the journey of morning prayer, all these elements, the first half being the Word of God read and the second part being the Word preached, right? That was a, if we're thinking about, so you and I are still moving through the Word of God read in our service. We talked about this arc that we start here, we go through confession and repentance and the absolution and then we begin this journey of these scripture readings and responses going back and forth in this dialogue as God is sort of wooing us to himself by declaring his love after he's... Uh, declared Jesus to us, he slowly speaks to us through his word in a way that woos us toward his heart. And then that's when the sermon occurs, and after that, it is sending us back out. God, by his word, is sending us back out into the world. Let us go forth in the name of Christ. Thanks be to God. It's that journey that, again, being restored, then repurposed. Being satisfied, then sent. Being comforted, then uh, commissioned. And so last week, we went over the confession of sin. We got to that place. And I want to give you just a brief word about what's down here. All these names. Efficient. What in the world does that mean? It means someone who is leading us through the office. And the office, again, are those daily uh, prayers and services. It's kind of old English language, language for a daily prayer service. So the efficient is someone who leads us through the office of worship. You know, um, One of the things that we have done is, in a desire to let you know, because we are all celebrants, uh, and because Jesus is the one true, capital C, celebrant, the one who has the right to lead us into the, the throne room of the Father, we're reserving that title. Uh, we, we keep it whether we're doing communion. And for those of you who are Episcopalian, you know that uh, oftentimes the efficient in a holy communion service is called a celebrant. Uh, but the reason we're reserving that is is we want you all to know that we're all celebrants underneath our capital C celebrant together. So we, in, in our services, even in Holy Communion, are still calling our efficient uh, and efficient there. The lector! is the person who reads the scriptures, the one who reads the what we call the lessons. They're the person who... Um, and more and more, we're desirous that it be someone who's not uh, an ordained minister, precisely so that we get the sense of being the priesthood of all believers. And by the way, I had this sort of revelation again that other people talk about when they talk about the procession. When you think about the procession, of course, we talked about the image of heaven that's there in heavenly worship. The other thing that's going on in procession is that the leadership in worship starts from the back, i.e. from the congregation. Meaning that even as we go up to sort of lead you, we're just one of you. Who God has said, hey, this day I want you to go before the people of God and lead them to Jesus, right? And so the image of us coming from the congregation and then coming back into the congregation is really a sign of our unity. That there's not some sort of magical power that we as priests and ministers have. You know, we have a special call and a special office to minister the Word in a unique way, and that sets us apart in that category. But, you all are set apart in your vocations as well, and so we really do believe in the priesthood of all believers here. Uh, Intercessor is the one who prays the intercessory prayers, and intercessor is someone who goes before someone else on behalf of someone else, you know? And so really, again, we want to acknowledge that Jesus is our true intercessor. Uh, And yet, and yet, we have people who are called underneath Christ's intercession to go and pray these prayers, uh, and we'll get more to that later. Okay, I want to exegete the Declaration of Forgiveness a little bit. So this is one of the places where we actually use an older prayer book form rather than 1979's prayer book form. This is the one we declare to you. It's from 1662. It's much more close to Cranmer's language. I want to read to you the 79 uh, Declaration as you sort of look at this and see how much more, given what Bishop Allison preached today and what we prize about the gospel here. Listen to the difference between the 79 uh, Declaration of Forgiveness and Absolution and the one that's here. 79 says, The Almighty and Merciful Lord grants you absolution and remission of all your sins, true repentance, amendment of life, and the grace and consolation of the Holy Spirit. Not bad. Not bad. But when you think about what this says, when you're a sinner and you're feeling the weight of your sin, and you hear these words, Almighty God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who desireth not the death of a sinner, but rather that he may turn from his wickedness and live, hath given power and commandment to his ministers to declare and pronounce to his people, being penitent, the absolution and remission of their sins." He pardoneth and absolveth all those who truly repent and unfeignedly believe his holy gospel. It's right in that moment where we should feel a resurrection of the heart occurring. Because through a creature, through an ordinary human being who is as broken as you, which is why I often see some ministers as they lift up their hand to declare this to you, are holding one hand to their chest. Why? Because I need the absolution just as much as you do. You know? Uh, Oftentimes, I can't do it because I'm holding a bulletin, but I want to. I want to, because I'm preaching it to myself as much as I'm preaching it to you today. It's that moment that should feel like that moment where you're down on your knees, beating your breast like the publican rather than the Pharisee, and just coming clean, exposed before God. And God declares from you, I don't desire your death. I desire that you repent and live. I desire your change of heart. So this Hear these words that actually affect that. The words of forgiveness through Jesus Christ. That is the very word. This is the sharp edge of the living and active word. I dare say this is a really crucial moment in our worship service, is this moment where you, with your ears, hear declared to you as an individual. This is the most individuating moment in the worship service when you stand naked before a holy God and the holy God, like the Father runs to you. Did you hear the language of Luke 15 this morning? While he was still far off, while we were yet sinners, while we were dead in our trespasses and sins, God rushes from heaven to you to say, I love you, I forgive you, and kisses your neck. You should feel that moment very acutely and very really in these words. You know, We don't want it to feel stale. We want it to feel like a father running towards us and giving us that love. And then here's the response. Wherefore? Because of that, we beseech him to grant us true repentance and his Holy Spirit, that those things may please him, which we do at this present, and that the rest of our life hereafter may be pure and holy, so that at last we may come to his eternal joy through Jesus Christ our Lord. The English reformers believe that the gospel actually has the power to produce fruit and good work in your life. And we're going to see it incompletely and in a messed up way in a way that's always mixed with sin, but nevertheless, this is the power of the Word of God and the sharp edge that declares love and forgiveness to you. Good works, love, the ability, as as Bishop Allison said today, to be totally free, to love one one another with without hooks and strings attached and all those kinds of things. Now look with me just briefly at uh, kind of the scripture references you have here. And again, you've got them in your handout and I encourage you to look them up Read Ezekiel thirty-three eleven sometime in its context. Desireth not the death of a sinner, turn from his wickedness and live. Um, so there are these things. I want to point out to you now, there's a really crucial thing that happens in our posture right after the declaration of forgiveness. What do we do? We stand. When the word of God speaks into the life of a dead man and a dead woman, what happens? The dry bones gather up and live and stand in the resurrection of Christ. I hope that every time after this, when the declaration of forgiveness is given to you and you stand, it's not merely, oh, it's that portion in the service where we're supposed to stand up. It becomes for you a feeling of resurrection. Your dead bones have now come alive. It's very important that we always stand there. Because it's a physical sign of what has just happened to your heart yet again as the Word of God declares to you that. And so, even the postures of kneeling and standing, they're not just haphazard. There's meaning to them and purpose. Feel the resurrection in that moment. Feel the resurrection in that moment. Alright. And so we get to these things which are, uh, which is really cool. Because in this moment, after we've stood and the resurrection has occurred, A dead person now, because they've been renewed in Jesus Christ, has the ability and the power to praise the Lord. And so, even at this moment, we humbly ask and say, it is only by your power, God, that I will praise you. So, O Lord, open our lips and our mouths will show forth thy praise. This word is very, oh, sorry, let me go back. This word is very specific. It's from Psalm 51. It comes after the moment where David is confessing his sin to him, to God. He he prays this prayer, Oh God, open my lips and my mouth shall show forth thy praise. And so it's a beautiful statement of the power in that that moment. Christ has done it all. The only thing left to do for us is to worship. The fact that this is a a part of a psalm, by the way, connects us, and we'll see this again as we do this, it connects us to our Jewish and Hebrew roots. I mean, our worship at Advent and as Christians is very ancient, you know, and to to incorporate these kinds of psalms and words connects us in that moment. But don't lose sight of that, remember that after forgiveness, the very praise we offer in response is God's gift to us. So even our response only happens when God sort of opens our lips, grabs our lips and opens them up and fills us with His Spirit to praise His name. And so it makes sense. That after this moment, we have this word, which is a little old English word. But before we get there and talk about the Invitatory, I want to sort of us talk globally about what happens next. There's a dialogue that ensues in this arc right here. It's at this portion of the arc where we find ourselves. And it's this dialogue that starts happening again and again, which is why we go up and down. Because there's an opportunity for us to get that God... After having declared his forgiveness to us and we rise up, is starting to draw us to his heart through his word. And so there's a dialogue that ensues where God speaks and we respond. God speaks and we respond. God speaks and we respond. You feel this. It's almost like a mini lessons and carol service in the middle of morning prayer, right? And so all of a sudden, you have this kind of shape. Forgiveness is declared and we stand and we respond back to God with a song. And this song is actually an invitation to come further. And then the psalm and the epistle are read. God is declaring something more to us. We read it on our lips, but God is speaking. And the song, the canticle of Isaiah that we often sing, or another song or canticle, is done at this place. And we respond to that again. Then the gospel is read and we respond with a hymn. That's why there's this back and forth. Because all of a sudden, once dead bones live and we are resurrected, God starts a conversation with us, declaring good truths and love to us so that he's drawing us into his very heart. That's the idea behind uh, this shape and scope. And so again, when we talk about this invitatory, I just want you to look at that word and know that it's God's invitation. At this moment, as we praise the Lord, you'll hear words in this song. Sometimes it's the what's called in Britain the venite, or the venite, which is, uh, the psalm that says, O come, let us sing unto the Lord. Uh, psalm 96, Psalm 95, those kinds of things that we sing. And it's God's invitation to us to come in and enter in, which is why almost always you'll hear something that's sort of provoking and evoking your heart to come. Even as we're responding, God's beckoning us. And so think of this moment as the invitation. Hey, come to my heart, dear child, and let me declare to you how much I love you and show to you and display to you my love. That's the goal in this moment. It was originally named for the invitatory psalm. As I said, Psalm 95 and 96. Psalm 95 begins with O come, which is Latin for venite, which is why it's often called the venite, right? Hence the song title often associated with this moment. The choir often sings what's called an antiphon, and it's a little bit of a call to worship. O worship the Lord in the beauty of holiness. O come, let us adore Him, right? They're inviting us in. So I often close my eyes in that moment and hear God saying, come, now's the time. And then my lips open and I declare through the power of the Spirit all these marvelous attributes of God. Oh, come, let us sing unto the Lord. Let us shout aloud to the rock of our salvation. The prayer book encourages us with several songs for this moment and allow God to invite you in. All right, let's look at the psalm. This next moment. Okay. This is where a lector stands at the eagle lectern. There's a little bit of a symbolism and a history to the eagle lectern that kind of predates the Reformation, but is a beautiful symbol maybe worth us acknowledging. Um, Probably most common in Anglican churches, you'll see this lectern that's actually made of an eagle. Sometimes it's actually a pelican, which has a really strong reformational uh, component to it that we'll get into another time. Uh, Some have said that the eagle is the only animal capable of staring into the sun. And likewise, Christians are able to, by the power of Jesus, to stare confidently and unflinchingly at God's white-hot, bright revelation of Jesus Christ. And so the idea there is that once we've been forgiven, clothed in the righteousness of Christ, there's nothing left for us to do but go straight in and hear the very words of the Father. And whereas Moses could only see God's back, we are allowed in to see the glory of Jesus through the 3D glasses of Christ, <laughs> you know, the, the blinder, you know, it's so bright and yet we have a righteousness that withstands uh, the light. So just as also people have said, the eagle flies closest to heaven, so the word of God brings us close to God's heart and is to fly to the four corners of the world too. There's a real, a missional reality as we look at that eagle that the word of God being living and active not only works on us, but goes out and sends us out to fly over the world and preach the gospel there. It also has represented the eagle, has been a particular symbol of the apostle John, who is the revelator, the one who has given us uh, you know, a description of Jesus in John 1 as the word of God before the foundations of the world, has given us the book of Revelation, those kinds of things. Again, the psalms in our worship, when we get to this place, connect us to the worship of the ancient Hebrews, our spiritual ancestors. The psalms, think about this, were their liturgy. The psalms were their liturgy, and as we read these together, we're connecting with the saints of old who saw Christ as a shadow and a type in the sacrificial system and in their own redemption out of Egypt. You know? So there are spiritual ancestors that we get to pray the same prayers with, you know? It's a beautiful picture of the unity and the power of being connected to a very ancient body and a worship practice. The psalms into scripture reading, I had this one commentator put it beautifully that when we recite a psalm and then we hear a scripture uh, passage read, we said, One of the beauties of of the liturgy is its variety. Thus, after the active devotion of psalmody, meaning you and I pray this prayer to God, it's our devotion to God. After the active devotion of psalmody, there comes a refreshing repose in listening to the lesson. So we've said, God, I love you. I declare these things to you in the psalm. And then we sit and we receive from God and God speaks and we respond. You know, there's this beautiful uh, devotional element to the dialogue. As Richard Hooker an Early Anglican remarked, in due course there is thereby made we are thereby made the more attentive to hear, and he which heareth is the more earnest to pray. Do you hear that? So when we hear the Psalms, it 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 makes us more attentive to hear from God, and we hear the word read. And when we hear the word read, it makes us more earnest to pray. You know, so there's this dialogue here. Yes.
1: Why do we read responsively? And who decided where to put the asterisk? <laughs>
0: <laughs> well uh the the prayer book who decided to, where to put the asterisks is, is the people who uh, compiled the prayer book. Um I I actually think <coughs> it's a little artificial sometimes. You know, I, why I you why
1: don't we just read
0: it all. Um I think so that it has a sense of uh, of dialogue, so that it has a sense of, of rhythm to it. Um the question's being asked of why why don't we just read it all? Um and I think there's a variety of reasons. I think Partially because there are times where we do read it all as we sing it. And so just engaging them in different ways helps us. Yes? I was
1: just going to say, some churches do it by
0: whole. Right, they do it by whole section. section. Yeah, I think that there are some just more naturally, if we're trying to make it felt more dialogically, there might be some better ways to break this up, I think. Because some ideas go together, and you almost want to say the whole thing together, right? And it feels a little awkward that in the middle of the phrase it's sort of broken up like that. Um, so that's a good good question and good point.
1: Yeah. The, we always did that. We did that for years and years responsively at the whole verse. I mean, right. That's the way I came up with it. Yeah.
0: I think it makes more yeah. sense. Maybe we'll do that.
1: <laughs>
0: All right. We move on to the uh, scripture reading here. I just want to say this about listening to scriptures read. My admonition to you as your canon for liturgy and worship is that listening to the scriptures being read is an active act of worship. We offer up the worship of our ears in this moment on the edge of our seats, desperate for the word of God as though our lives depended on it because they do. You know, um, with all the ups and downs that our worship has, there's a a strong sense, and I get it, that worship feels very jolting. And it doesn't have a, a, a flow to it when we're constantly going up and down. But if we allow these postures, these ups and downs, to be means through which our soul is putting itself before the Lord, sitting down is actually a very ancient and appropriate way to hear the scriptures read. Because it's, in a sense, bowing our bodies and just making ourselves very attentive to the Word of God being read. I think there's good reasons why we stand during the reading of Scripture and why we sit. But allow these these ups and downs and these postures uh, to train your heart and to move your affections in certain ways, to receive. And now that you've kind of seen this dialogical shape, let it happen to you. Let the Word of God do its work on you as you stand and as you sit. I love this response down here that we give every time. The word of the Lord, thanks be to God. There should always be this sense of relief almost that God actually doesn't leave himself unknown to us, but has declared through his scriptures who he is and what he's done. And every time we we say this, the word of the Lord, thanks be to God, we're reminding ourselves this is a gift. God didn't have to give it, but he's gracious and merciful that he does, and the fact that we get to read such big chunks of scripture. Listen to this. Before the Reformation in England, several lessons, as many as nine, were read in the services, but each consisted only of a verse or two. In Latin, right? The nine lessons together were probably shorter. All together were shorter than any one of our others. And the lessons were invariable. So they were kind of always the same. The Reformers were interested in offering Larger and longer chunks and sections of Scripture. This format of longer readings may have its roots in in Jewish synagogue worship, actually. Because you remember that episode in Luke 4 and 5 when when Jesus goes into the temple and he had a lectionary reading for the day and it happened to be from Isaiah. And he says, the spirit of the Lord is upon me to preach good news to the captives. He starts reading the lesson for the day. And then, by the way, mic drop, he says, that's all about me. That's about me. Boom. You know, and pe- some people are like, whoa, is God among us? And other people are like, stone him. You know, he's blaspheming. Jesus kind of is a polarizing figure, right? Um, that's how the law and the gospel work. They tend to kill us and make us alive, right? Uh, and so what's pretty cool, the gift of the Reformation is reading a lot of scripture. And I will tell you, it is, it is one of the great ironies of 21st century evangelicalism. It is one of the great ironies that in most evangelical churches today, you have less scripture read than you do in Roman Catholic and Eastern Orthodox services. It's one of the great ironies being a people who draw our tradition from sola scriptura. (laughs) So thanks be to God that we're in a church where we read the scriptures and we read them through in a way that we hear them publicly read. These are powerful, wonderful things. You know, and we don't need to sort of get all puffed up about it. We just need to thank the Lord that we're in a tradition that really prizes this from and of the Reformation. Yeah.
1: Interesting that you point that out. But Dean George at Beeson has spoken from our pulpit and said it's strange that you hear the Bible read more often in this Episcopal church than you do in most Baptist
0: churches. That's right. He's making the same point. Exactly. Totally. Yep. And so, again, in this dialogue of response, you know, where God speaks and we respond and he's drawing us to his heart, we often sing this song, right? Uh, the first song of Isaiah. So let me talk briefly about this odd word, canticle. I, and it's like, you know, if you, if you don't know that word, canticle, you're like, what is that exactly? A canticle is simply the name for any scriptural song, a song from scripture that isn't a psalm, right? And so one of the cool things that uh the fathers did is said the psalms aren't the only songs in scripture let's sing some of the other scriptural songs one of the earliest ones was uh in exodus you know right after they crossed the red sea and miriam takes up a tambourine and and as the people's worship leader just leads them and and praying praise god he's hurt he's hurled the horse and the rider into the sea he's delivered us you know and they're they're praising god for his redemption and so the beautiful gift of the prayer book is that it, it gives us these texts of the canticles and it reminds us we should not only be singing and praying psalms, we should be singing and praying these. And, um, and so this one that our church just loves. Our, you know, I don't know if you noticed, but the decibel level goes up when we sing this song. Uh, and this is sort of our, my barometer. My barometer is I, I hope that all the other hymns that we sing start to match the vigor and the vitality through which you all sing this one, okay? This is the barometer. And so if you find yourself singing more softly, notice, uh, in spirit, I'm walking up to you and slapping you on the hand. And uh, in spirit, during the worship service, in the love and in the name of Jesus, I'm doing that, okay? Uh, Just because I want us to be, you feel the difference when we're singing. Um, It moves our hearts and it actually helps us to engage this dialogue and this journey of God moving us toward his heart. To hear these things, right? Uh, And so as you sing various canticles, marvel at God's grace. That even the words of response and worship we're given are God's word. God's gifts to us in worship. And so again, after we sing a song that is God's gift because it's his word, (laughs) we go back to hearing yet something else again. The gospel, the word of the Lord, thanks be to God. And then we sing another hymn, right? So this dialogue is meant to draw us, draw us to God's heart. I want to make that clear. After that dialogue has ensued and we've experienced the ministry of the Word, the reading of the Scriptures and the responding with Scriptural words and words derived from Scripture through hymns, isn't it interesting that the next thing to do is to say, I believe! And why is that totally right theologically? Because as we've said time and again, it is the word of God that births faith. It's rather unfortunate that the English language has two different words here for faith and belief, because in both Greek and Hebrew, it was one word. Uh, And so just know when you say, I believe, you're saying, I faith in God, the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, right? So it's this moment where the Word of God has done its work on us and I'm ready to stand again in the resurrection of Christ and in response say, these are the things that I believe. And don't just believe them up here, right? Bishop Allison's reminding us, I believe it in here. The Word of God has birthed this faith in us. And so my admonition, my encouragement to you is to recite the creed with all the conviction and joy that befits the truths that we're confessing in this moment. Read it, as the English reformers would say, heartily, right? Read it heartily. These words confess the deepest realities about your life and my life, so say it like you mean it, right? Say it like you mean it. Even though we say it every Sunday, it is the declaration of what is true. The Trinity, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Forgiveness of sins I believe that this body that hurts your aches and pains that you bring into worship every day is going to be resurrected one day. You know, I believe in that. I I believe that one day God's going to unite us all in this broken church that argues and bickers is going to be restored. I believe in that communion. I believe in that connection with people that have gone before. I believe in the forgiveness of sins. I believe in the life everlasting. I'm not going to die ultimately. I'm going to die a first death, but I'm not going to die a second. I mean, what more grand thing can you declare in faith is true in the face of the fact that your body's wasting away. I believe in the life everlasting. Where, O oh, death, is your sting? Where, O oh, grave, is your victory? Right? I'm just trying to cheerlead and pump you up a little bit, right? Feel it, peoples.
1: Yes? He descended into hell. Yeah. Right. Now, for those of us who started out Methodist, that's what... Aww, freak that's out! Great. <laughs> <laughs> right. it, 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 it took me a long time to... to Choke on that, right? Does that come from a passage in Isaiah about Thou didst not leave His soul in hell? Kind
0: of, yeah. It's 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 the oldest form of the Apostles' Creed. We're talking about He descended into hell and kind of the difficulties of squaring that. And one of the more helpful ways that I've heard this explained that feels satisfactory to me is: What is hell ultimately? but the removal of God's presence and separation from God. What did Jesus experience on the cross? The removal of his Father's presence and separation from the Father. He, the full eclipse of the Father's love. That's hell. That's hell, right? Jesus experienced hell on the cross. Now, there's all kinds of mythology about in these three days when Jesus is in the tomb, he's going and based on some passages in Peter preaching to the spirits in prison what in the world does that mean i don't know right <laughs> what i want to confess is that jesus experienced hell so that you and i don't have to and that's a good word and i probably haven't answered the question all the way and that would probably take a whole class a theological kind of treatise on that and books have been written but if i'm just getting at the heart of what we want to confess yes so he to the dead. Right, because oftentimes uh, in Hebrew, the word for hell, Sheol, means the grave and death and the ground and being buried. And so the kind of uh, the idea is the intermingling of another read on this is that Jesus really did die. He really did die. He was actually buried. He wasn't a fake. He didn't swoon. You know, not all these weird theories about Jesus that are trying to scientifically dif- disprove the resurrection. Jesus died, right? He died. Don't want to belabor it too much because we've got to go on. Um, really cool response that happens right after this, but I want to get to it next week. Actually, any questions? Any questions? Go ahead. When
1: you're going to get into it when you're in the uh, communion service that the Nicene Creed doesn't mention that.
0: Right. I don't know that I'm going to exegete the creed, but we will point out that it is a different creed that we're using in that moment.
1: The Nicene Creed was... Composed and came out of a different set of questions, right? Which was more the the to determine the true nature of the Trinity, right? Which was the big question that Constantinople and Nicaea settled, as it were,
0: right? Yeah, and that you're pointing out that the Nicene Creed, so the Apostles' Creed had been around for a while and it had been doing its work, but heretics were saying. I, can, I fully subscribe to the creed, and yet I believe X, Y, and Z uh, that aren't true. And so the Council of Nicaea formed to say, hey, we need a more robust creed built on the Apostles' Creed that sort of flowers it out. I mean, if you notice, the Nicene Creed sounds like a longer version, more expanded version of the, of the Apostles' Creed, and that was because unique things were happening in the history of the church that required attention. And so there were sort of certain heresies at that moment that needed addressing, and that's why probably some of that stuff and uh, you know, at the Council of Nicaea, I'm sure they talked about that line. <laughs> so uh, yeah. Any other questions before we sing?
1: Yeah. The uh, the, the daily nature of the, of, the, of the daily office seems to be maybe lost a little bit. Yes. I wonder, do you have any thoughts either corporately or how as families we can mm. recapture that idea?
0: Yeah, um, you know, in the 21st century modern family America, it's just, with all our devices, all our distractions, all our sports activities with the kids, um, and even for those of us who are empty nesters, whose kids are older and out of the house, doesn't it seem just impossible that one could find time where everybody's around to sit down and pray through these things? Um And yet our tradition gives us worship services. I mean, what you're pointing out is right, um, that these are daily offices. They they were meant for morning and evening prayer of every day, you know, that we kind of walk through these liturgies together. Our prayer book actually gives us, um, in the 79 revision, some devotions for families to go through. It's kind of a a truncated version of the liturgy that might be worth checking out. I don't know that I have good answers to this conundrum. (laughs) Uh, Because it has to do with the busyness of American culture and the lack of sort of familial solidarity that exists. Uh, And I don't know if that takes a revisioning of the way that we think of devotion. I don't know if that this is a paradigm that doesn't fit or whether we as Americans just need to repent of how busy we are and choose a different lifestyle altogether or uh, whether we need to figure out some sort of app that dings us (laughs) and reminds us to pray, you know. No, we don't need any more phones. And I know, yeah, I feel you, I feel you. Anything else? Yeah. Technical question. Can, yeah.
1: can this be posted on the internet along with the audio?
0: Why do you say that? <laughs> you, it's so helpful. Yeah. 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 Um, we're working on it. I'm actually going to take this and we're going to create an annotated leaflet that becomes a regular gift to all our new members. Uh, and it's going to look like this, but a lot less, like, sort of overwhelming and... hopefully it will be a little bit more visually pleasing. So, yes, I think the goal is to create something that sort of describes what we do and then makes them ask enough questions where they want to listen to this podcast, you know, of these classes and gets them into this a little more because, yeah, I can sense it's been helpful for us, right? Uh, All right. So, the reason I love the canonical uh, first song of Isaiah, and I think the reason you love it, is because it declares a word to us that is our only hope, right at the top end, that we sing two times. Surely it is God who saves me. Surely it is God who saves me, and I will trust in him and not be afraid. You know, our flesh wants to look to other saviors. And just saying this again, after the ministry of the word, and after God has sort of declared his love to us, we're being drawn, is a wonderful thing that always brings tears to my eyes, and grabs my heart. And brings me to this place where I'm ready to hear yet again, you know, Zach, you blew it again. You weren't the perfect husband. You weren't the perfect father. You weren't the perfect pastor. Thank God that you're not your savior. (laughs) Thank God for Jesus. Surely it is God who saves me. I will trust in him and not be afraid. For the Lord is my stronghold and my sure defense, and he will be my savior. And then there's a missional component. Do you hear the second half of this? After we draw waters with rejoicing, we make his deeds known among the peoples. See that they remember that his name is exalted. Sing the praises of the Lord, for he has done great things, and this is known in all the world. I mean, oh, in this political... It just makes me groan in this 21st century climate where America is just freaking out. We're freaking out that we have something that just reminds us, oh yeah, it's going to be okay. Okay whatever, come what may, God is sovereign and in control. I think that's why this is such an anchor for us because we're just in tumultuous times and our lives are crazy and difficult. And to sing something familiar that just gets to the heart of the matter and preaches the gospel to us in a powerful way is marvelous. So, uh, actually, would you stand and sing this with me? Surely it is God who
1: saves me. I will trust in Him and not be afraid. For the Lord is my stronghold and my sure defense, and He will be my Savior. Therefore you shall draw water with rejoicing from the springs of salvation. And on that day you shall say, Give thanks to the Lord and call upon His name. Make His deeds known among the peoples. See that they remember that His name is exalted. Sing the praises of the Lord, for He has done great things and this is known in all the world. Cry aloud, inhabitants of Zion. Ring out your joy, for the Great One in the midst of you is the Holy One of Israel. Surely, surely it is God who saves me. I will trust in Him and not be afraid. For the Lord is my stronghold and my sure
0: defense and He will be my Savior. So may the Father remind you today that as you go forth into the world to make His deeds known among the peoples, that He loves you, that He is for you, that you are His and He is yours and nothing can separate you from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus. Right. Amen. Thanks be to God.